I received on my desk this morning a package, and I didn't know where it came from, so of course I opened it right before worship because I thought it might be cookies. You, you never know when somebody's going to send you cookies in the mail, so it's good to check. But it, it was a couple of books um, and a letter uh, from a person I've never met before, an individual who uh, found my preaching uh, through our ministry of, of being on the internet. And she says she's an elderly woman and she listens to our worship services and our sermons together while she walks and exercises with her walker. And she felt inspired to send me a thank you letter and these two books. And the first is, of course, with head and heart, the great autobiography of Howard Thurman, um, which is a phenomenally uh, good read and it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. But she also sent me the, the Gullah Bible, the Gullah Bible. And I'll read what she wrote. She said, the Gullah Bible translation is a profoundly significant project that captures a way that people from Africa living under slavery appropriated the content of the Bible for themselves on their own terms and in their own way of speaking. Gullah was not a written language and the translation team undertook vast hours of work to put it onto paper. The accomplishment of the published translation was a profound affirmation for Gullah people because it was, they'd suffered humiliation for speaking poor English rather than receiving respect for having their own language, which has its own proper grammar and structure. And I, she says, I find it humbling to read in the Gullah Bible because it gets hard for me to understand. It helps me comprehend the experiences of a child fluid in abonics who is expected to read, speak, and write standard English and there are wordings that intrigue me. For example, the alive-sounding earnest line in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, stated as, let we don't have had test, and Satan try we. What a precious thing to receive on Pentecost Sunday, and so appropriate. From Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost come, all the people that believe upon Jesus, been get it together in one place. Wonderful. From Esther. Thank you, Esther. If you're hearing these words, this is a very precious and perfectly poignant gift. Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, descend upon your people again and set us on fire to light the way of Christ. Amen. Well, this week, I, this previous week, I made a mistake. Um, and I'm going to explain how I discovered this mistake. It was a simple mistake, and it's a mistake that is e very easy to make. Um, but most of you know, I think, that I have a home office um, that I built for myself. When we moved into our new uh, uh, kind of compound uh, down in Alto, there was one very nice home office, well-appointed. Uh, and that, of course, became the possession of my beloved spouse. Um, it has great, beautiful picture windows looking out over the pond, and it's where she has her psychological practice. I, on the other hand, uh, received the barn uh, and some old slab foundations, and so I set about to build for myself a home office with some building materials that were just left laying around the, the, the place, and I built a, it's a well-appointed shack, uh, it's roughly 10 feet by 10 feet, and it gets a lot of sunlight, and I set the old windows in it, and, uh, and I installed my computer, and I ran in power and internet, and that's where I write my stuff. My, Mom actually helped me build it, and she said uh, lovingly at the close, she said, yes, and this will be where you will write your famous manifesto. 
and someday this shack will be in the FBI museum and everyone will come and see it. I do a lot of sermon writing in that shack and it is a little tiny shed so it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. Um, So in the summer, what I like to do is I will set a fan in one of the windows and then I crack another window so there's air. And as I was working on my sermon uh, this week, there was a bird and it kept perching on the windowsill and uh, making like it wanted to fight me. And it was a tiny bird. Uh, It was a ruby-crowned kinglet, a kinglet, which is one of the smallest little birds that we have in Michigan. And they're adorable, and they're, but they're fierce. And it was just bouncing at the, at the window. And I suddenly, uh, it dawned on me what might be happening. I looked up over my left shoulder into the corner of my shack. And right there, uh, adjacent to my stately two-volume set of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, was a nest. I'd left my window cracked all week, and the birds had come and built a nest in my shack. So I didn't know what to do. When I don't know what to do, I reach out to friends who might know, and so I asked Steve, uh, who, who stays with us, I said, do you, what do I do? This is bananas. There's eggs in the nest. I, I don't. He's, so he's graciously going to reach out to an ornithologist, friend of his, to discover what to do. It may be that I shepherd this one generation of kinglets out into the world, and then I put a screen over my window so it doesn't happen again. Um, but I'd made a mistake. And, and it'd be easy to think that the mistake that I made was that I left the window cracked. Um, that was a mistake, and I won't do it again. But really, the mistake that I made was assuming in my home office that I was inside. I assumed that I was inside, as though inside is a place that exists in the world. Humans love to think in categories. One of the most basic categories that we have for ourselves is inside and outside. Now, what about a tent? If you're in a tent, are you inside or outside? Well, you're inside, I suppose. And what is an office or a home, if not just a very well-appointed tent, right? We're never truly inside. We're only in varying degrees of outsideness. If I took all of the doors off this church and let the wind blow through and let the various urban creatures come and colonize this space, we would discover in a short uh, hurry that we're never actually inside. And on my property, I have to, every single year, reestablish inside. Because if you fail to do that, outside will rapidly come inside. Outside's always trying to come inside. But it was a mistake that I'd made. It was a category error. I'd left that window cracked, thinking for all the world that why would any animal want to come inside and build a house? But to that little bird, it was never outside or inside. It had simply found a nice sheltered area and two hard surfaces between which to build a lovely little nest. And you make these category mistakes all the time as people. We evolved to do this. It was for our benefit when we were out on the savanna to be able to distinguish between foods that were safe and unsafe, places that were safe and unsafe, animals that were safe and unsafe. We evolved to think and to be these pattern recognition machines, right? And so we have biases. We have all of these different biases that we carry around because we think they'll keep us safe. We think about places 
and we think about identities, who we are, where we are. And so this week, we received Pentecost, which attempts, I think, to fix these mistakes, to fix these mistakes. What is speaking in tongues? Now, I, I know that there's a lot of different theology out there, and I'll tell you what I think. I, I personally think that because the scandal of the first century church was that it was an, uh, an inter, uh, interracial and international movement, I think that the scandal of the church was that as a Christian, you could set aside your nationality and be part of a movement that disregarded your status. Um, now today, a lot of people think speaking in tongues is, is kind of gibbering and, and, and I'm sure you've seen videos of it and stuff and people jumping around. Um, for Peter and for Paul, they're very clear. Uh, speaking in tongues is one person speaking in a native language of their own that they received and another person interpreting it for the benefit of the other people in the room. So this sort of thing, interpretation, wasn't unknown to the Jews. They would listen to the, the Hebrew Bible uh, in worship being read in uh, Hebrew, but many of them didn't speak Hebrew. They might have spoke Aramaic or Greek. And so they would have a translator uh, sitting there as the rabbi read from the Hebrew. The translator would translate it into the local tongue. Um, one of the rules that they had was that the translation of the Hebrew couldn't be longer than the Hebrew. And that was to keep the translator from inserting their own thoughts and interpretations into the word. But this activity that was known to the Jews would have been practically unknown to all of the surrounding countries, this act of translation. But the Jews were equipped to do this. And so in the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish holiday, they came together and they began to translate the good news of Jesus Christ to all of these different nations, to all of these people, in ways that they could understand it themselves. And this was scandalous. Scandalous. At a time when the nation that you were born in, or the nation that you were a citizen of, didn't just determine your nationality, it determined which God you worshipped. Because if you were from a certain region, there would be a God associated with that region and that culture, and that was the God that you worshipped. And it was scandalous to say, no, in fact, we worship the way of Jesus Christ and give glory to God the Father. So it was a loosening, I think, of chains for many people who perhaps had been rejected in their own native place, but had found a new category of people to be with, one that was truly international. Today, this scandal continues. Um, we typically see it in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Pope will make some statement that frustrates the petty rulers and tyrants of the world. The Pope said recently, every single Catholic family in Europe should welcome a refugee family from another country into their home. Of course, the nationalists and the xenophobes in countries like Belarus and Hungary, where there are Catholics, said, over my dead body. But the Pope doesn't care about international borders. The Pope is the head of an organization that doesn't care about borders, the Roman Catholic Church. We see this sometimes in the United States to our peril when we claim, for example, to be a Christian nation. But then suddenly, when thousands of Christians press up against our southern border, 
men, women, and children who are Protestants and Catholics, evangelicals, and Lutherans from the southern uh, countries who hear this notion that their Christianity would make them suitable for living in a Christian nation, and they come with open hands and hearts, and we say, perhaps not that kind of Christian. Because really, we have an idea about what Christian nation is uh, that is perhaps limited by race. Um, so we've sort of shown our hand in that, in that way, that it's not really the Christian church that we serve, but rather the church of the United States of America. Okay, these are category mistakes. They're mistakes. Um, and I try to give people grace when they make these mistakes. Um, grace comes from God, and grace comes as Pentecost. Okay, so we've said the real scandal of Christianity is that it, uh, it, it loosens any sort of uh, national fervor that we may have. It sets us free to truly be people of the earth, and why? Well, God tells us why. God says again and again and again in the Bible that God is jealous. God is jealous. It's an interesting word in Hebrew. It doesn't translate very well to English, but it means a sort of spiritual covetousness. God is a jealous God, meaning that God can't tolerate our love being given to any other God. It makes God frustrated. You know, who else are jealous are powerful nations, the powerful men who rule them. So nations are jealous, and so we have to be careful where we give our affection. I think that one of the most profound and important things to reflect upon as a practicing Christian is to stop in your daily life and try to answer the question, where am I standing right now? You think of the first mistake, am I inside or outside? Well, we've already shown that that doesn't really always make a lot of difference. Of course, if it's raining, it's good to be under a tree or something with a roof over your head. But where am I standing while well, I'm standing in Grand Rapids? Am I? What was it called before it was Grand Rapids? Kalamazoo was Kikalamazoo. Before that, the Ohioan people had a different name for it. Where am I standing? I'm standing in the United States of America. Well, now it is. A while back, it was Anishinaabalan territories. A while back, it was French. Uh, where am I standing? I'm standing on earth. I'm standing in the kingdom of God. I'm standing in the kingdom of God. I think that that's a powerful thing to think upon and to remember. To not make the mistake, the category error, of thinking that we know where we're standing when we're not really standing there at all. We're standing in some place transcendental and that God is jealous for our affection in that very moment. Well, sometimes we get so lost out there in the world. We wander so far away from the kingdom of God. We, we get bound up in our lives. Our minds are filled with the troubles of the day. Jesus' words that we shouldn't worry are so distant that they even register in our mind. And I think that there's a way to fix that too. I think that that's what Jesus is giving us today. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And when I first wrote this sermon, I had written out a list of Jesus' commandments. 
depending on who you ask, there's between 70 and 120 things in the four Gospels that Jesus says we ought to do. I think suffice to say, simply go and read the Gospels, and you will discover in short order the things that Jesus commands us to do. Greatest among them, of course, is to love God with everything and to love our neighbor as ourself. But when we get lost and we want Pentecost to come back into our lives and guide us away from all of the material concerns of the jealous world that's around us, back into the presence of God, then we, we do what Jesus says. We simply follow his commandments. And then he says, I will be with you. My Father within me will be with you. We keep his commandments. We keep his commandments and then we avoid falling into the temptation of imagining that we are all somehow different. That we are Parthians and Medes and Arabs and Jews and Cretes and all these people listed here. Those categories are dissolved in the fires of Pentecost. And you know the interesting thing to me about this is that it's also based in science. Humans are many things. Smart, they work well in small groups. You get more about a thousand of them together at any one time, you're asking for trouble. Humans are creative and clever, but one thing that human beings lack is genetic diversity. Genetic diversity. I know I've said this before, but many years ago we went through what's called a genetic bottleneck. The entire species of humans was reduced to about 5,000 couples. 5,000. We almost went extinct. Homo sapien almost went extinct before we got out of the crib, so to speak, got out of Africa. But out of those 5,000 people are descended every single living human being on the planet today. So one of the pitfalls of that is that we lack genetic diversity. In fact, two sibling chimpanzees, if we want to look to our next nearest neighbor, two sibling chimpanzees, a brother and sister, have more genetic diversity than the entire human species. Well, what does this mean? It means that we're prone to things like pandemics. Pandemics impact humans far more than many other species because we're so similar. Viruses prey on humans and spread because our genes just aren't that different. They aren't that diverse. Now, other species, when they experience the cataclysms of a genetic uh, a monoculture, they go through the catastrophes of the ecological... Uh, for example, you look at any endangered species, something even like the Tasmanian devil, there's so few of them out there that they're so closely related genetically that they too can get wiped out. Um, some species of birds are subject to bird flu. Uh, chickens in America and poultry in general that we've bred out of a very small genetic pool can get wiped out uh, by a single flu strain. And so humans are the same. So the very idea that we are somehow distinct and separate from each other and totally different is, it flies in the face of the science. So this is affirmed by these readings from Pentecost and the Gospel of John. It's God explaining to us, listen, you've invented a million different ways to imagine that you're all different from each other, that you come from different places and that you're going to different places, but you're not. You're citizens in the kingdom of God. And you're more, you have more in common with each other than you can ever imagine. 
And I think that this is why God says, suffice to say this of all your nations, of all your languages, of all your cultures and histories and generations, of all of the things that you think make you so different from each other, know this, each and every single one of you is made in the image of God. And there's only one God. So from the outset, remember who you are, close kindred, made in the image of God and nothing else. And remember where you are. You are standing on consecrated and holy ground, the kingdom of God, inaugurated by the fire of Pentecost. And if you start to wander, if you start to forget, simply obey his commandments, follow the teachings of Jesus, and you'll find your way home in short order. Amen? Amen.